0: Welcome to podcast number 149 of My Favorite Detective Stories. Today's date is February twenty-second, 2022, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Our guest this week is James Iskin. James is the author of the Anthony and McCavity Award-winning Ellie Stone Mysteries. His books have also been finalists for the Edgar, Barry, and Lefty Awards. A linguist by training, he studied romance languages and literature at the University of Pennsylvania. After completing his graduate degree, he worked in New York as a photo, news producer, and writer, then as a director of New York University's Casa Italiano. He spent 15 years in the Hollywood post-production industry, running large international operations in the subtitling, localization, and visualization effects fields. His international experience includes two years working and studying in France, extensive time in Italy, and more than three years in India. He speaks Italian and French. James lives in the greater Boston area. This is a very fun interview. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. A lot of good advice for new and aspiring writers. Welcome to my favorite detective stories. I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Come sit by my campfire as we listen to crime fiction writers talking about their flawed fictional detectives. I will alternate weekly between award-winning and best-selling authors with debut authors who have overcome all the obstacles to get their first novel out into the world. This episode is brought to you by my own FBI agent Marsha O'Shea six-book series and my upcoming Gwendolyn Strong small-town cozy mystery series. To learn more, go to www.johnhoda.com, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com, and join my email list. Liberty City Nights, my Marsha O'Shea prequel novella, is available to my subscribers there for free. Hi, James.
1: Welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here.
0: I'm glad that you're here today. And how's the weather up there in greater Boston today? Uh,
1: Today it's a little gray just a little above freezing so not bad no snow on the ground yet
0: that's a good sign for mid-december as we speak today is december 10th it's late on a friday afternoon not a bad time to be chatting it's a little breezy but sunny down here on the coast in uh, southwestern uh, connecticut today as we speak so uh, mutual friends of ours frank safiro and colin conway suggested that uh, we get together and talk told me about a really interesting character that you write, and I wanted to learn more about your uh, journey, your career, how you got into writing, and about Ms. Stone. So if you don't mind, just go ahead and uh, get started. Tell me. So Ellie
1: Stone is my protagonist. It's a series of seven traditional murder mysteries so far in the series. I have plans for a few more. They're set in the early 1960s in various places, but it's generally centered in upstate New York the stories are set there but Ellie herself is a is a native of Manhattan she grew up in New York City the daughter of a of a very well known professor of literature and a mother who was a, an art dealer so she comes from a quite a you know well educated background and it's 1960 when the series opens and she is a very smart uh, young woman who wants a, a career she it uh, does not want a job where she is taking dictation or fetching coffee or where her boss is you know patting her on the behind. She wants a career as a reporter so one of her college professors had put her well puts her in touch with with an old friend who is the editor of a small town daily in upstate new york and so that's how she ends up there but she ellie is is a is a very fiery character she's very she's not uh, physically imposing but she's very smart and very opinionated and very she has a very strong moral compass even if she uh describes herself in 1960 and 62 63 as a as a quote unquote modern girl which means probably what readers or listeners think that means she smokes and she drinks and she ends up occasionally uh, with you know in the arms of a man Okay. And so, uh, through her work at the newspaper, she and she 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 investigates murders. But then the series does take her elsewhere. She she goes as far afield as as New York City, Los Angeles, and even in the latest book, Florence, Italy, to accept a posthumous award for her father.
0: Oh, okay. Now, nineteen sixty. First thing that comes to my mind is My Three Sons, Fred McMurray. But that was all male dominated, so I can't even think of a TV show. Back then, that would have had a a strong lead female character, maybe other than Mary Tyler Moore, the uh, Dick Van Dyke show.
1: Which was, oh, in the Dick Van Dyke show. Yeah. Which was, even that was a couple of years later. Yeah. Uh, Maybe, well, Donna Reed. But Donna Reed was a different kind of, you know, that was a housewife and different kind of a story altogether. You know, the uh, Patty Duke show, maybe, but uh, that's about teenagers so yeah i can't think of of anything from that time that would that would fit ali yeah
0: really so 1960 through 1963 not necessarily historical but definitely period and uh period in the sense of uh where all your also in setting where all your places are taking place so not only is it you know, between the, the Cold War 50s and before the explosion of you know, peace, love, and, you know, the you know the later 60s, but also in terms of uh, location, you know, we're talking about, you know, uh, some mill towns that are going through upheaval. We're talking about, you know, different political situations going on where uh, labor is different and really a time when, uh, kind of time between for lack of a better word why did you choose that uh, era may i ask
1: yeah I, well it, you're absolutely you know right on the money there i wanted it to be before the sexual revolution i wanted it to be kind of that as you called it an in between period but the exact date isn't that important but the exact starting date of january 1960 is when the first book begins was due to the fact that i wanted to set it at a time when the memories of world war 2 were still you know very fresh but yet starting to fade, you know, for people who had experienced it. One of the important subplots and the main plot as well definitely harkened back to World War II and memory and things like that. So that was the choice for that. I thought 15 years was a good amount of time for that. But the the 1960s, precisely because, you know, if Ellie's spirit had been, her spirit were placed in a story set in the late 1960s or early 1970s, it wouldn't have been quite as daring on her part, let's say, you know, or as scandalous that she occasionally does uh, end up in bed with a man who, you know, is not her husband because she's not married. So yeah, that's very much on my mind when I started it. I wanted her to be pre-feminism, pre-sexual revolution. And yet at the same time, in 1962, Helen Gurley Brown's uh, Sex and the Single Girl was published, and that kind of works very well in terms of Ellie's personality or her, her backstory, if you will. This idea that, that nice girls never did this kind of thing, I think, is, is very naive. And, and a book like Sex and the Single Girl certainly kind of illustrates that.
0: And, and to your point, James, it makes sense to me that the setting and the time period actually illuminates your protagonist and draws her in a sharper image than if it was in a more stereotypical 50s or the like the sexual revolution of the later 70s. So you really put her in a good spot to allow her to be different. And I almost want to use the word trendsetting if, I, if I'm allowed to, in terms of how she can forward her own professional career. Does that make sense? It
1: does. I've thought a lot about that kind of thing. In her case, what was always present in my mind is that she's not aware of the fact that she's a a trailblazer. Oh, okay. And she doesn't want to be either. She has her her opinions and her desires and what she wants to do, but she's not thinking, I'm going to make the world better for women. And, you know, she just is is kind of maybe uh, the nose is a little closer to the grindstone and thinking, I I want a career. I want to do something that, that I think is important. And uh, that's that's what's in her mind. I mean, the, the result is the same. She is doing that. And I think that the, the contrast of the time, you know, her intelligence and her wit, you know, set against the restrictive society norms of the time does work to define
0: her, I hope, more clearly for, for readers. Now, can you compare and contrast? I love that word because it, it's... It causes you to allow allows you to do anything you want to do with that. This answer compare and contrast her with some of the uh, writers that wrote female protagonists back in the the golden age of mysteries, and how does she stack up? Say in, in the Agatha Christie novels and the way uh, maybe Dorothy Sayers wrote. Do you do you mind? Uh, well,
1: definitely Dorothy Sayers. Definitely Harriet Vane. I think is is a is a good comp. For okay. Ellie Stone. She was a little bit scandalous. Uh, she was very smart. She was very independent minded. And, and you know, I think Harriet Vane is is a great example. And that would be 40, maybe 40 years or 30 years before Ellie Stone's time period. The difference is that Harriet Vane and the contrast here is that Harriet Vane ends up with uh, Lord Peter Whimsey. And, you know, Ellie does not do anything of the kind. I set out in this series to kind of stubbornly say, I want to to kind of stand a bit of the genre tropes and and commonplaces on their head. Instead of a male investigator or private eye or reporter who uh, sleeps around and smokes and drinks and never settles down, I wanted it to be my protagonist, Ellie, but with more obstacles in her way because she's a woman. And I naively made that choice, I think, when I first had the idea for this series and started writing it. You know, today there's a lot of talk of, of appropriation and, you know, writing... I think people are coming around, and they, they they agree that it's it's certainly okay to write across gender, or even to uh, you know to represent you know maybe an ethnic group that is not your own, but you better do your research and do it right. But when I began, I think you know, and it was probably fifteen, maybe even eighteen years ago when I first had the idea. I don't think had it been published then, there would have been maybe a, a totally different reception. In today's uh, current climate, I think that some people. Might not appreciate the fact that a man of a certain age is writing about a uh, a young woman as a as a protagonist and in the first person. I think I enjoy it too much, and I think that I love the character so much. And I think she's the she's always the smartest person in the room. She's determined. She's willing to fight, and not physically, but you know, with her wits and her wit. So I just want to continue the series. And I think oh, you know, it's been well received. I, I, I'm very gratified. Uh, By that, you know, I would hope that people enjoy the stories and enjoy the characters and give the books a chance. That's Mm. all I can ask for.
0: You know, you're right, James. You are absolutely right. But then I thought about the opposite. Who gives a rat's patoot? And I know that's, I can get away with saying that on my own show. Mm -hmm. Who gives a rat's patoot if Mm -hmm. a woman wrote a hard boiled detective, male detective? From a first-person point of view, would there be any pushback? Would there be any blowback on that? Do you think? Not, not
1: usually. I think, and I have several friends who do that, and you know, who write very successful series that that they write with male protagonists in first person. And Terry Shames comes to mind. She's a wonderful writer who writes. Uh, the Samuel Craddock uh, series set in, in Texas, and he's he's got a such a distinctive voice, and it's a wonderful series of about eight or nine books now, the Samuel Craddock uh, series. And they're all with nice, little big, long titles. Uh, that's the kind of thing that she does. But anyway, that's one, and there are so many others. It's not just, there, there are many. And I think that the blowback has been more when men do it, right, women. But I think even that, as long as I think that there's a, you know there's there's a there's a an evolution in the attitudes at least the general attitudes it's just like yes if you do it right and if you and if you uh do your homework and you know a- attack it really with with you know the best due diligence that, that you can do this it's not and, and also i would add that, that listen well i'm not a 25 year old 26 year old woman in 1960 i do come from you know the same Background that Ellie comes from, and we do share a lot of a lot of other things, just not maybe the most uh, obvious one
0: and do you want to expound upon that a little
1: bit well ellie uh, you know we our politics I would say are the same our morality is is the same she's got uh really a strong sense of empathy for victims in my books. The victims are not just you know dead prostitute number one and you know number three or whatever right. uh, you know we when somebody is 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 killed in in my books it generally it really does affect ellie quite a bit if once she in, investigates so there's that uh she i think has you know many well similar interests uh I guess Scotch whiskey is one of them. I don't smoke, but then again, in 1960, I'm sure I would have.
0: And I, when I, and anybody says Scotch whiskey to me, I always say there's no e in whiskey. It's just whiskey when it's Scotch. Exactly. Yes, yeah. we know exactly. that.
1: Now, in some of my books in the past, the early books, the editors were saying, "Well, in America, we put an e." And yes, but Scotch comes. So I think some of them might have that, but but Scotch comes from. Scotland, where they don't have an. That's policy. right. So, it, in Ellie's case, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be there. And I apologize to readers if it is in the in some of the earliest books uh, of mine, uh, but the later ones, I'm I'm sure it isn't. I know, but that
0: was uh, editors trying to follow the Chicago Manual <laughs> style yeah, name, as yeah, opposed yeah, to exactly. it, uh, us aficionados knowing the difference. Definitely, uh, and I only say that you know, as, as like a little joke, but realistically here's somebody in 1960 who has a sophistication to know the difference between a scotch whiskey and another whiskey that a bartender might throw across the bar at her. So that's very interesting.
1: Yeah. And one note, one note, John, about Ellie and drinking again, that's one of the, one of the commonplaces we see in, in the crime fiction genre. And, and sure, it's overdone. And I, but you know what? I have no problem with cliches if they're handled well. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the truth is, if you read a couple of the books, Ellie is, is what today we call a high-functioning alcoholic. She holds her liquor really well, and that's maybe part of her problem. She can drink men under the table when they're trying to get her drunk to take advantage of her, that kind of thing. I think she once said, many men have ended up under the table instead of under my, under my sheets you know, when they were trying to get her drunk. But that was part of the setup. And look, this isn't real life. And no books out there in, in, in our field are. You can take the most realistic police procedurals. And, you know, we do still have to suspend some disbelief when we read them. You know, amazingly complex and fascinating and and, and confounding cases does a detective see, you know, in, in a career. It, I mean, there may be some, and but... I mean I would imagine most crimes are just uh, you know well it was the husband who did it or it was it was a drug dealer who killed another drug dealer and it's not always a mystery with a puzzle and things like that so we do suspend our disbelief when we're writing this I know that Ellie is she seems she has the trappings of realism on the outside she she's not a superwoman she's not a she's not one of those female detectives who beats up the bad guy she she's, she's a pipsqueak she 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 could never do that so again she uses her brains and i like to think that that's the realism that i was striving for but but i do really believe people should consider that it's okay that we suspend some disbelief i think even harry bosch i mean how many how many great cases could could he have or is it mostly just you know going after a drug dealer or you know or some you know some something along those lines Yeah.
0: No, Harry Bosch is one of my favorite reads. Michael Connelly, over the years, absolutely. But it's set in L.A., so you have your chance to have more than the garden garden variety gangbanger. Although, you know, uh, Bosch has taken some of those gangbanger cases because it's very simply uh, the the life that died is just as important as any other life. You know, that's one of his mantras. But let's not talk about Bosch too much. There's a lot of literary flair to what you write with Ellie Stone because people perk up and and pay attention to what you're doing. I mean, winner of the Anthony and the Barry Awards for best paperback, original. Uh, McCavity Award for best historical novel. And also, uh, you've been a finalist for the Edgar, Barry, and Lefty Awards. So, you know, some people are taking notice to this girl from the 1960s and the plots and the settings and the dialogue and and the other things you put together with this. So- definitely some good stuff here to take a look at and that she also i think the 60 that, that period in the 60s allows you to really put her at odds with the good old boys club that that gives her Absolutely. more of a um, a difficulty to uh, overcome you know not only we know better but we know better than you girl you know i hate to say it that way but hey you know that's what
1: yeah, back
0: yeah. then so she's got both of those things going Against her, which makes her even a more compelling protagonist for the readers to want to to root for, and that sounds to me like something that has come through, and you've done a nice job of turning that. Now you say there's five so far, and and seven planned. Is that is that what you said earlier? No, no,
1: seven so far. Seven there's so far. Seven. Seven so far. I apologize.
0: Okay. I didn't write that down. So right.
1: no, but what you say about this? Uh, that's all right. About the 60s, you're absolutely right. And the attitude of the men, like her bosses and the people she interviews, it's almost every time she's known in that small town, that small mill town and dying mill town in upstate New York, they they know her as the girl. That's what they call her. And and she's becoming kind of known and the, she's got a good relationship now with the sheriff of the county. But most people who run into her underestimate her and that like they, they, they obviously disrespect her first. But then sometimes that she works that to her advantage because they underestimate her that that can give her an opening sometimes.
0: I love it. So how long have you been writing Allie? Uh,
1: I wrote the first one probably in 2008. And then, you know, then I started the search for an agent and finally found an agent. And then it took like about three years to, to sell it. So, (laughs) and, but then the first one, and then we sold the, the, the subsequent books, you know, with, with, no problem, to the same publisher.
0: And you've been with the same publisher since?
1: Uh, I, up until the, the first seven books, yes. I have a new book coming out next December, a year from now, but that's with a different publisher, and it's a different, uh, a different uh, series, I guess, a planned series I'm hoping for.
0: Up to you if you want to preview it with me.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, that book is uh, entitled Mo- uh, Bombay Monsoon. It is set in 1975, India, in Bombay, what is today Mumbai. I've spent about almost four years in India working and traveling. Uh, for many, many years, I was working in Los Angeles and we set up a couple of businesses in India. And so I, I would spend months at a time over there. But then uh, in 2010, 11, I all 10 and 11, I guess I, I lived, I was living in India for 18 months. My wife is Indian. And so I've spent uh, a lot of time just visiting anyway. And it adds up to almost four years in India. So uh, I was you know fascinated and I love the country and you know I've long wanted to write something about India. So in 1975 what happened was Indira Gandhi was the uh, prime minister as her father had been and she and her father had been the prime minister of India for 26 of the 28 years India had been independent at that point in 75 and in 75, there were she was facing a lot of domestic uh, opposition and strife. And so something um, sparked her to declare a domestic emergency. And so for about 18 months, they suspended civil liberties, due process, freedom of the press. She threw her political opponents in jail. And so that, that's the backdrop of this series. It's an American journalist who shows up in India, just as the emergency is declared. I call it Gatsby meets Graham Greene on the subcontinent. That's how I describe the book. It's this young reporter who kind of falls for the girlfriend, the lover of of a very kind of mysterious and magnetic man who befriends him. It's it's a thriller of sorts. It's not a typical thriller, I'll say that. And, and I like to say, if I'm going to compare myself to somebody, why not Graham Greene? That would be just fine with me.
0: All right. No, for
1: that book. But I'm I'm not saying it's up to Graham Greene standards. I'm just saying it's got that kind of stranger in a strange land, uh, you know, that kind of a feeling that you you get in so many Graham Greene novels.
0: No, I I understand. I I get it. I'm with you on it. And that's neat to know that, you know, another publisher wants to take a chance on Bombay Monsoon. There, you're stretching your legs in a new direction. And that this is going to and take- writing a male character. And, and for, right, yeah, I, I got that part time. too. I was listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. let me ask, but what was the impetus going back to writing the first Ellie? Where were you at in your writing career at that point, And why did you decide to write Ellie?
1: Well, you know, I'd always wanted to be a writer from the age of 12. Okay. Uh, I, I wrote uh, my first novel at the age of 12. It was awful. It just, I mean, it's what a, 12-year-old might write. You know, it was just not very good. I'm a firm believer in somebody once said that, you know, a writer has to write, get rid of the bad words, like the the rotten words of writing before you can start writing the good ones. And so that's how you learn. You just learn by doing it. Some people are great right out of the gate. I was not that lucky. I had to work at it. So I wrote that novel. I wrote another one when I was in college that was bad, but not, it wasn't awful, I suppose, or as awful. In graduate school, I wrote a, a huge historical novel, and that one was was okay, I guess, getting better. Uh, then I wrote a couple of novels in the, maybe 10 years later that were improving enough to get me an agent the first time. This was in the 90s, early 90s, but we never managed to sell those books. And then in about 2005 or six, I just said, you know, career and life got in the way. And I was just thinking, you know, this dream of becoming... And becoming a writer, just it's never going to happen if I don't get on my horse and do it now. Because if not now, when? So that's when Ellie came into into being, thinking about it, writing it, and then finding an agent. Again, I think I found that my next agent in two thousand nine. But it took three years to sell the book. But then, since then, it's been you know very gratifying that since twenty thirteen that book came out in twenty thirteen, uh, and then it was one per year until this last one there was a two year there just barely a two year thing because it came out in january instead of the the uh, previous year so it was 2013 14 15 16 17 and uh, 18 and then 20 and and in, in that time i um took basically a retirement and uh, did, devoted myself to writing these books. You know, that's, that's career-wise how, how it happened. I just said, if I don't do it now, when am I going to
0: do it? Absolutely. I get it. No, I, I get it. And I, I think that it came at a time where you didn't let your earliest... Failures. Okay. But, you know, the, yeah. the acronym I like to use, instead of failures, fails, I'd rather use the word fails, and using an acronym of first attempts at learning. I I think that that best explains it in that you didn't say, oh, I wrote this piece of, you know, whatever, and then I'll never never live up to my own idea of what a writer should be. But you just kept writing and writing. And like you said, you got the bad words out of the way. And over time, you developed your style. Over time, you developed your voice. Over time, you decided uh, that you were going to be more committed to this. And over time, you place yourself in a pl- in a in a position where you could allow Ellie to enter your life into your mind. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I think it's important for all aspiring writers or even you know current you know writers to it's just keep write the next thing. It's yes, of course, polish what you've written. But I think I was probably stuck in this, and I sense that many many writers are too. They write. Something they write a book and then they just they try for seven eight years to polish it up and send it out again and try to keep doing it. It might it, you know maybe the better strategy would be to put it in a drawer, write something new and write another thing new and write another and maybe later on I have friends that I know who have gone back to then they go back to the to that book that they put in the drawer and maybe then fix it up and and now it's ready.
0: Oh, and they're looking at it with new eyes too.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and cringing maybe and saying, oh, my God, I can't believe I thought that was going to sell. And it's it's really important. I, I always think of it as it's, you know, it's always looking for the next book. The next book could be the one, you know, and I'm not saying throw away your work. But but if you spend too much time trying to market a book, then, you know, that's, you know, th- that can be a trap. That's all. It, just write the next book. Mm-hmm. No, and then write another
0: one i i agree with that 100% my first book was a uh i would call it general literary although i don't portend to be a uh the next f scott fitzgerald but it got me started and it gave me a couple characters that i thought a couple what ifs about what if this what if that what if this and it's and it spawned uh, a, a six book series police procedural crime thriller out of that spawned what's going to be a four-book cozy mystery, uh, which I think is going to then also, and then from that original crime thriller series, is going to spawn maybe a, a legal thriller with a, a young, recently graduated from—I use the word Elm City University—and here in New Haven, uh, there's only two law schools, I think. So you get you get an idea which one that is. But anyway, yeah. but but here I am. I'm taking the attitude, along with what you're saying, but I'm taking the attitude of, look, I'm going to write what I want to write because this is what I want to do. I was happy with my six books yeah. my six books in the crime thriller, Police Procedural, but then I I got really turned on to writing a cozy in the first person present. And I just thought that was such a way of doing a whole new set of exercises. It's like going from I don't know, from uh, a Nautilus machine to free weights, if you know what I mean, you know, using I was exercising new muscles differently, you know, and I'm happier than anything to sit down and do it. So I would say also to the aspiring writer, you know, don't pigeonhole yourself into a certain idea of what you can write and what you can't write. Uh, You know, uh, Eight years ago, nine years ago, did I even think uh, I? could I, I don't think I could even spell cozy mystery, let alone write one. I just kind of went off on that detour. But uh, to uh, reinforce what you were saying about the, what the aspiring writer can do and how their paths can lead them further down the road, is that is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you mentioned cozy, and it reminded me. I neglected to mention it. The way I found my second agent was with a was with a cozy that I had written. Uh, that has never been published okay i liked it and tried to sell it and it never sold and in the meantime i i wrote uh, the uh the ellie stone the the first ellie stone book so which is not a cozy i mean it, i don't i hope people don't um no, i love cozies it's not that it's just you, know, you want the right audience you don't want somebody thinking it's a cozy and then picking it up and find that it's a traditional yes but with it does have some noirish elements and it's not, uh, and it has some humor in it because she's funny, but it's not, this is not a series of, you know, lighthearted, you know, murders and things like that. And, and listen, there's nothing wrong with those.
0: No, but you don't have any, uh, you don't have any food recipes in the back of Ellie Stone's books. No, no, no. no. no I say no. that the, although the last one, the last one said in Italy, there
1: is a lot of food in it, but there are no recipes. It's in Tuscany and it's uh and they're trapped in a villa, eating really great food and drinking great wine.
0: How can you not talk about really great food and how and very great wine if that's yeah. if that's the setting? I mean, come on. I think of uh, the movie with Diane Lane set in Tuscany, and it was a uh, yeah, yeah. light um, romantic comedy, but there are a lot of food. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely for sure. And, and in my book, there, it, it's
1: funny. It came out the day after the first or the day before the first covid case was diagnosed in the United States oh. in January 2020 and it's a book about a quarantine in a in a in an Italian villa in 1963. Oh boy. So uh, I don't know if the if the timing was good maybe people weren't in the mood but that's the one that won the berry award and the uh, and the uh, Macavity for best historical this year. So I was very proud of of that and gratified.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, it was out of the country it was a—I don't want to call a locked room mystery, but it, it, yeah, it is. It is a locked room mystery. It,
1: It's—it's—it is—it is in a way, it, except it's after the fact okay. that they are locked, okay, way, if you will. Yeah, okay. But that was what I was going for. I love those stories where people get trapped in a ski lodge or they're, you know, any, you know, any locked up, what, on a train or something in a snowstorm, that kind of thing. Mm. Oh, it's great.
0: Now, if if we could just take a, over, a hurricane
1: or something. Yeah,
0: I I get it because it, it it sets the mood and the the mood, the setting, and the concept are all affected by and the plot are all affected by the their circumstances. So it really sets the reader's expectation as to what's going to take place, and you know, if they want to go on the ride, well, they know that this this is what it's going to be. So you're already identifying your niche of readers, and if they like your uh, protagonist and they're going to say, well, I want to see what Ellie does in this situation. I have to ask you, though, uh, the 25-year engagement in League with Sherlock Holmes, can, can we talk about yes. that a little bit, please? Absolutely.
1: I was approached by uh, Laurie R. King and Les Klinger, who edit these, uh, they've done, I think, four or five of them, these collections of stories based on, uh, not based on, inspired by by Sherlock Holmes. They approached me and asked if I'd like to write one, and I thought about different ideas. It didn't have to be uh, a pastiche or a, or a Sherlock Holmes story, just some somehow inspired by it. So um, I thought long and hard about writing something different, like a caveman Sherlock Holmes. I thought, wouldn't that be kind of cool, you know? Uh, but in the end, I read the others, and then I I looked at like readers' comments, and I saw that a lot of them said, "Yeah, but there are no Sherlock, or there are very few Sherlock Holmes stories here." So a lot of people bought those books with the expectation that there would be Sherlock Holmes stories like, you know, past- straight pastiches. So I said, you know what? I don't want to get a-, a bad review, so I'm going to write a Sherlock Holmes pastiche for this. I think it was one of maybe two in in that collection that came out in at the end of 2020 and it, it just was one of the best decisions I think I could have made because that story was nominated for the Edgar this year for best short story. That influences a lot of readers and voters in the other awards that come afterwards. And so it was also nominated for the Lefty for Best Short Story, the Anthony, and the Agatha. Uh, I'm sorry, not the Anthony. You know, it was the Anthony. I'm sorry. It wasn't the Lefty. It was the... Uh... McCavity. No, it wasn't nominated. It was McCavity. It was nominated for that. So it was four, four of these wonderful, prestigious awards. Of course, it didn't win any of them, but that's all right. It's pretty tough to get a nomination for an Edgar. So I was thrilled. And um, it was a fantastic experience to write the story. And it really helped me sharpen my research skills. And I found new resources and and strategies to do that research, to avoid the pitfalls of anachronisms and and just things like that. I found some some wonderful resources like uh, this Ngram viewer, which is a Google site. Ngram viewer, and you and it's it's all of the books that have been digitized. You know, over the last ten, fifteen years, uh, Google has been digitizing millions of books, and um, you can search for terms, and it will tell you how often they show up. For example, in in you know all the way back to I think eighteen hundred. Wow! Right now, really, it, it does. And so, yeah, so you can see there's it gives you a nice little uh, graph that shows you what year and how many times it was used, you know for example I looked up I I tried to be careful and, and say know what you don't know and look up every term to make sure it was in use in the 1880s in London because you know that's where my story was set so I looked up one of them was soldier on and I thought of course that was used you know but I'll be careful and I'll look it up and lo and behold there were many soldier ons listed but when I clicked on the reference and it showed them to me, it was like a soldier on leave. And it it apparently uh, the term uh, was was coined here in somewhere in the mid 1800s, which was fine. But it really didn't catch on in the UK until after, around the end of the First World War. I got you. So I changed it. You know, it was it's things like that that came up. And it's if if you use this this ngram viewer and use it carefully and get to know it and make sure you're you're checking, and it can be it can be a lot of digging and 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 verifying along the way. But it can be if, sometimes you're just looking for one occurrence in your time period that you're writing in of the use of the word you're looking for, and then you say, okay, it was being used then, so I can I can use it in my book. I also use the Sherlock Holmes concordance uh you know because there i could look up all all the words that are that that conan doyle used
0: there's a sherlock's Holmes concordance i did not know that
1: on online yeah oh just it's online you can just look up any word and it'll tell you how many times it appears and how many you know and if it doesn't appear now if it doesn't appear doesn't mean that it wasn't in use at that time that's where the uh, ngram viewer comes in handy but uh yeah, no, it was a wonderful thing. I mean, it, that was ironclad. If, if 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 Conan Doyle used it, you know, a, a certain term, I could use it. For example, blow someone's brains out. It might sound kind of vulgar and or you know maybe modern and and not something that would appear in a Sherlock Holmes story, but it does. So I put it in mind too. He uses he definitely used it. I can't remember which which book or which story it was in, but uh, and things like hunting. Seasons, things like that. You know, there are that wasn't the the con- necessarily the concordance, but like the you know almanacs, the British almanac uh, from if you could find it from 1882 to see well when was uh, you know when when was duck in season or whatever <laughs> so if, if that's something
0: you need in your story.
1: So <laughs> actually, in mine, it was otter. Okay, it was otters. So that appears in the story.
0: It's so interesting that you got the offer. You did your research into writing a short story and and what the audience was missing. You wrote a story that you really enjoyed, but you also want to make sure that you were historically accurate for the language you were using at the time. You're a linguist, too, from your training, right, if I'm not mistaken? Correct,
1: yes. So that... Yeah, I studied... um Yeah, romance languages and literature and uh, a lot of linguistics went into that. But I guess linguist can be used to be someone who studies linguistics or even somebody who learns languages. So I guess I was a little bit of both. As a matter of fact, I'm currently I'm a French teacher and middle school French teacher here in Massachusetts. Wow. Um, And uh, I've taught Italian in the past as well. And I just love languages. It's really a big passion.
0: So but then... With all that, you, you know, I was talking about going from a Nautilus to free weights. You were going from some other sort of exercise with Ellie to something totally different with Sherlock Holmes and, and were able to, uh, to make it work and it worked out very well for you. So I think that was a nice departure from what you were doing into to something else. You, and you took a chance. You didn't just rest on your laurels. You didn't stay with the formula. Not that Ellie's a formula, but you know what I'm saying. No, absolutely. Thank you for, for that. But, you know,
1: and, and John, I I don't want to, you know, mislead anyone. It was a ton of work. I reread, I think almost every Sherlock Holmes. I mean, I really, really went back and reread everything or, you know, 90, 85% of it to right before I wrote it, it took about a month and a half because I wanted to, to get the voice in my head, you know, and try, and I don't know if, if if I've done that or not, but a lot of people have, have said they thought I did, and I tried even to find a plot that that was very, you know, Holmesian and something that's very that would have been very present in in British minds of that time or in British memory of that. So a lot of that story takes place or in the past. It's a cold case, basically, from India uh, in the eighteen fifties when the uh, Great Mutiny, what the British call the Great Mutiny. Happened, and what the Indians call the First War of Independence. But that—that that, you know, the, this whole notion of empire, and you know, that was that was something obviously that that the uh, English, the English, were so proud of, and 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 just always thinking of.
0: And, and so, you set this in so India.
1: The story that is set. No, no, it's set in London, but it it, heart, it, it goes back to something that happened in India. Oh, I see. Uh, in 1857. Okay. So a nice, very twenty-five years later, and that's where we get the title. You know, so basically, it's a, if you will, a cold case or it's a cold story, and and I think that works well. That you you hear a lot about about even in in Holmes, there are several I think mentions and stories of even even Watson himself. I mean, the, the first the first book begins with his his history in India right when he was uh, wounded, the doctor and then goes back uh study in scarlet yeah and when he goes back to london and finds needs to find lodgings and guess what mm-hmm. he ends up with a roommate named sherlock holmes mm-hmm.
0: a, a rather odd so, fellow yeah. but i can almost yeah. see the gaslit fro fog shrouded baker street with the sound of the mm-hmm. clop of horses in the distance i can almost Feel and see it. Well, that's all in the story. There you go. Every <laughs> word you just said is
1: in the story. Gaslight, gaslight dancing on the walls, and uh, and Holmes hears this, the 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 hoofbeats of a single horse in the street, and he says it must be a handsome cab. So yeah, it's it's all of that, you know, Holmes with his uncanny oh yeah powers uh, of, uh, you of you know interpretations that are just right, you know, and yeah, it's like, yeah, and and the the idea I kind of went into the story wanting to illuminate a little further the whole and have a little fun and so watson this story he tells it it's it's a case that watson has nothing to do with but he's just a witness to it as holmes solves it but he 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 describes a few things that holmes does that actually annoyed him at the beginning of their relationship oh nice Uh, but but not enough yeah but not enough to like for example his you know his bragging about knowing everything about mud he he said that he hated that when Holmes said the you know told him about that and about cigar ashes you know the distinguishing characteristics of of cigar ashes but then in the end he said it's all replaced by the by the affection and the you know the companionship that he that he cherished with sherlock holmes so it's a, it's like minor annoyance that a roommate might have with another one and i had a little bit of fun it with it
0: sounds that. like a, it's an interesting read it does. I I already I already know what's on my shopping list for this Christmas, James. Just out of curiosity, who do you like to read these days? Uh, these days,
1: I mean, I'm reading mostly in in our genre. So, you know, I read really very broadly, but I do have I do have favorites that, that and many of them are are friends and they're people whose writing I admire so much. I mentioned I mentioned Terry Shames. But uh, Lori Rader Day is a dear friend and a and a wonderful writer. Kent Krueger, William Kent Krueger, Timothy Hallinan, Deb Crombie, Deb, uh, Deborah Crombie, uh, Elizabeth Little. These are just. I, and I, I I hate to start mentioning names because, you know, you I'll leave somebody out, right? You know, people like Lou Burney is a great writer. I have a friend Wendell Thomas who is just she writes the funniest mysteries, just hilarious. I I've been. Reading a lot of Sujata Massey's current series set in well, the one she's writing set in in India, and um, you know, in preparation for my book too. And I and I have another good friend, Abir Mukherjee. His books are wonderful, set in India in the 1920s. Oh boy! But it just it goes on and and on. I loved Frank Safiro and and Colin Conway's Charlie 316. It's it's that's just a, a wonderful wonderful book with one of the greatest. Kind of almost, I guess he's the detective in the story. But there's it's an ensemble cast. But I just loved the the detective who everyone hated, and he hated everyone else too yeah. at, at the station. Dallas Nash. Uh, the name has slipped my mind. Dallas Nash. Yeah, Um I the name has slipped my mind. It was a couple of years ago that I read okay. it. But anyway, it's I, it's I think that is it. Yeah, a new write, a new writer that I've discovered recently is Alice Henderson, who writes these wonderful kind of eco thrillers she's she's got a new book out and it's she's just
0: well you like reading it and you learn from it and you you you're not swiping anything what you're doing is uh just expanding your own horizons keeping your own sword sharp and uh you're getting ready for your next novel and it sounds like uh you're enjoying your writing career quite a bit and uh life in general so it sounds great anything else that you'd like to add
1: Yeah. I would just advise if there are aspiring writers who are listening, don't give up, keep, keep going and keep growing. That's the key. Keep writing something new.
0: And and you have your own history to show that the proof is in the pudding, so to speak. And I think so. I don't, I don't know if that's in a Sherlock Holmes concordance, but the proof is in the pudding and uh, you did it. You know, the first ones weren't uh, the greatest American novel, but over time, you got uh, to where somebody thought that it, this was uh, worth taking a chance on and, somebody, and they convinced somebody else to do it. And how many books later you're, you're able to write and attract readers and, and have an enjoyable career. And you're getting uh, recognition for your writing ability as well through the award process. So congratulations. And that was a wonderful interview today. And I thank you for your time.
1: Thank you, John. This has been a great pleasure to speak to you and to meet you.
0: Well, thank you so much, James. and I appreciate it as well. Thank you for listening. I hope that I've earned your interest and your time. Our guest next week is Karen Oden. Karen received her PhD in English literature from New York University and subsequently taught at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Her first novel, A Lady in the Smoke, was a USA Today bestseller, and A Dangerous Duet and Trace of Deceit have won awards for historical mystery and historical fiction. Her fourth mystery, Down a Dark River, became available November 2021. A member of the Mystery Writers of America and Sisters in Crime, Karen was awarded the 2021 grant from the Arizona Commission of the Arts. Karen currently resides in Scottsdale, Arizona, with her husband, two children, and her ridiculously cute rescue beagle, Rosie. This was a fun interview. I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. This episode was brought to you by my own FBI agent, Marsha O'Shea, six-book series, and my upcoming Gwendolyn Strong Small Town Cozy Mystery Series. To learn more, Go to www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A dot com. join my email list. Liberty City Nights, my Marcia O'Shea prequel novella, is available to my subscribers there for free.